This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hi, everybody. I'm Steve Martirano, and welcome to Recovery Radio. We're here every Saturday talking about the disease of addiction. We hope you've found us by now. We hope we've been of help. Recovery Radio reminds you each and every week, not that you need to be reminded, there's a problem, a big problem going on in this country with substance abuse, Um, but there's a way to recovery because millions have found it. Recovery Radio is dedicated to information about the scope of this problem and, as I said, the path to recovery. It's all sponsored by Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. We'll have more about them straight ahead. Our guest today is... um, Jason Bannon. Uh, Jason has, in fact, wrestled with the disease of substance abuse in his own life. And uh, now he sort of tag teaming the problem by helping others, primarily his colleagues that he works with in the Communication Workers of America, uh, with their problems regarding substance abuse. Uh, Jason Bannon has been in the telecommunications field for over two decades. Uh, he started as the, uh, I guess, the proverbial Wichita lineman, only not in Wichita. And for the past six years, he's been uh, he's been working with his union uh, on the uh, employee assistance program, which is what this program is about. This is what the what the business and uh, and labor community is doing at their end to confront the disease of addiction. We welcome J- Jason Bannon to the program. Hi, Jason. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Did I get that right? You did. 20, you did a wonderful job. Tw- and we want to thank you, by the way, because if you if, if you guys uh, weren't good at what you do, we wouldn't be able to do these telephone interviews, I guess. Well, I appreciate being on. <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, I know in this position, you, you, this is a big job. I mean, you, you handle over 3,000 employees and their families, and I, I, can't, I'm, I can't imagine that that's uh, an easy task. But we're going to get all, uh, into that all, all um, in due course. I know when I spoke to you before we set up the interview, you were forthcoming in, in with your history and uh, are gracious enough to share it with us. So tell us about about you and, and your battles with substance abuse. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, uh, growing up, nothing, nothing too complicated. Uh, I did have uh, some sense of uh, abandonment of a, a mother um, who, who checked out when I was uh, of an early age and and later on in my life, I, I blamed a lot of my problems on that fact. Um, but, but realistically, that had very little to do with my substance abuse moving forward. And, uh, you know, I started drinking in high school, uh, was played football and, and was in a number of different things in high school and, and really started drinking like any, any teenager does. Uh, started smoking marijuana and, and, and socializing with, uh, with those kinds of people. And, you know, um, fast forward 17 years, and uh, I found myself in my home with the shades drawn and diving underneath the kitchen table when the, when the postman came to deliver mail and totally disillusioned and, and confused and just very anxious and um, had, had a, a lot of problems. Uh, you know, we, we often talk about this as a progressive disease, and, and it certainly was that way in my case uh as well um you know uh so it was about 2008 and uh, i had come to the end of my rope you know i thought i was living the american dream i had a wife two kids house motorcycle car all this stuff and uh realistically i was not happy at all and uh drinking uh to oblivion um 
about a year prior to that, I, I wanted to try and quit smoking, and I went to my local doctor, and, and he prescribed me Xanax. Now, I can assure you that I did not quit smoking, but I did, uh, <laughs> but I did pick up a nice uh, Xanax habit at the time, and um, so that, that contributed to all the paranoia uh, that I was experiencing um, when, I, when I first got sober. Um, I uh, did not go to a detox or a rehab. I, I didn't know what I know now. Um, I wish I had at that time. I didn't realize that detoxing off alcohol and benzos um, could actually have killed me. Mm. Uh, so I, I, I shake and baked in my in my work truck uh, for for several days, and uh, it was ap- absolutely horrific. You, you used know, to you, you used to climb up uh, poles. I did it, uh, it, manholes and poles it, it, um, in in this condition. Uh, yeah, I used to keep it together at work long enough to get home. And, uh, you know, I was experiencing some, some tremors, uh, by the end. And, um, I would keep it together long enough to, to go home and get my quote unquote medicine, uh, for the day. It's, uh, I suggested to no one to, right. to do this. You know, it was, uh, looking back on it, it was very dangerous, but at the time it was just, you know, the price of doing business. Well, you, you, you know, there's so many cruel ironies of the disease of addiction. I don't have to tell you about them. But one is that the higher you can function, perversely, the worse shape you could wind up being in because it's going to take you even longer, perhaps, to get, yeah. a, get around to, f- to fixing things. Yeah, Jason, you didn't start out with this plan. Obviously, this wasn't your plan. I, t- I ask everyone this who tells me their story because they're all so similar and yet very much different. When did – during that period of time, and I think you said it was around – 15, 17 years when your substance abuse grew and grew. But you started out typically experimenting with alcohol and marijuana. Um, mm-hmm. At what point did you begin to notice that maybe you, you were in a different league than your than your peers? Well, that, that's funny because actually I knew at about 17 years old. And um, I, I was home one day and, and talking with my stepmother, and uh, I said to her, you know, Mom, I, I, I think I have a problem with alcohol. And, and she said to me, oh, my God, let, we'll do whatever we can uh, to get you help. And the very next day I woke up and I said, you know what, I'm fine. Everything's fine. And I never did anything about it. So I knew early on, but did nothing about it. And then it just kind of goes to the back recess of your mind, and you don't think about it. It's just an everyday occurrence after that. And um, you surround yourself with people, I guess, who were also in the in the same kind of pattern, so it looks normal to you. Is that going on in your life? Absolutely. Friends, uh, family members. Um, you know, in my family, this, this disease does not run. It gallops. And uh, Were you aware of that yeah. before you, you started down this, that path? No, you you no. weren't you weren't aware of the family history. No, not at all. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. Uh, looking back on it, my grandfather uh, had passed away from heart attacks and and things of that nature. I had uh, cousins all over. I, I come from a large Irish family. I have uh, about nineteen first cousins. Uh, several of them have have passed away at this point, and and some from this disease. And uh, no, I I was totally unaware. Totally unaware. I, like I said earlier, I, I certainly did not know what I know now. And when did you be, uh, you mean in terms of the, the, the scope of this thing, the history in your life and, and, and the way out of it? You, you were uh, lucky in that you sort of white-knuckled your way uh, through this. I mean, you know, 15, almost 20 years ago, 
the the world and the climate and the attitude surrounding this disease was vastly different. Correct? Yes. Yes, it was. It was totally different. And you know, and and this is no blame on my family whatsoever. But but alcohol was a large part of our family gatherings and and things of that nature. So it was just, you know, it was just normal to me. It was normal until it wasn't anymore. And and, and at that point, uh, even if it it was problematic. Um, the, the big lie being told in families back then was that, well, he just goes a little too hard. Nobody thought of it as a disease or a, or a you know, something that, that should be treated, correct? Correct. And, and I was very good at, you know, family parties and gatherings to kind of keep it under control, you know, until I got home. You know, I would do, I, you know, I would drink uh, enough to be sociable at a party, but inside really wanting more and then just waiting to, to get home and then I could do the damage that I really wanted to do. Yeah, again, another irony for you in your particular case, uh, you were a solitary or, or a lonesome uh, abuser, which may, again, which is um, the kind of worst place to be in. So what got you to, when did the light come on, I suppose? <laughs> Well, there were, there were several instances in my life that the light should have come on, one of which was a, a, a very bad motorcycle accident in 2002, brand new motorcycle, went out for one, the proverbial one drink, uh, had too much, woke up in uh, an emergency room with blood on my brain, and uh, I had lost a sense of smell and taste, um, which has only come back about 35% in the last 13 years. Um and, you know, I said to myself at that time, well, I, I better not drink and ride. You know, that's just, you, <laughs> you, you had that in- settle down. You, you had that insight, huh? <laughs> yeah. So the reality was I just didn't ride <laughs> because I was, I was going to drink. And, uh, you know, seven years later, every year it was progressively worse. I, I, I would get, you know, I would say, okay, well, this year I could have one and go ride. And the next year it was two and three. And, and by the end uh, and, and me getting sober, it was as long as I can throw my leg over this thing and ride it, we're good. You know, so we talk a lot about not remembering the pain of the past. And, and that's certainly been true in my life. And uh, I, I was living a lot of different lives by the end with the paranoia and all that stuff. And I was telling a lot of lies to a lot of people. And uh, in November 21st of 2008, all those lies, all those lives I had been living were, were in the same place at the same time at a local watering hole. And uh, I became very, very angry. And um, I, uh, I, I went way overboard. And my best friend in the world threw me out of the, the bar um, you know, head first and, and, uh, you know, later on that night I was looking in the mirror and I, I basically had just had enough and someone had suggested to me, uh, a friend of mine and, that they were going to go to a meeting. And I said, well, what kind of meeting, a PTA meeting, PTO meeting, what, what kind of meeting are you talking about? And, uh, they told me it was, uh, they were going to go to a 12 step fellowship and, um, I agreed to go. And uh, from my very first meeting, I knew I was in the right place. You know, uh, I was at a speaker meeting, and and there was a woman telling her story. And I I couldn't necessarily um, understand the way she drank. She was a binge drinker, uh, and I was not. But I could understand the feelings and emotions that she was talking about, about being in a room full of people and feeling like you were all alone. And I felt like that a lot, even within my own family, you know. And... um, 
I went up to a gentleman after the meeting and I said, you know, how do you know you're an alcoholic? And, and here in Connecticut in our meeting schedule, we have a 20 questions in the back of the, the back of the book. And, and I only answered 17 yeses, Steve. So I thought I was okay. Uh, the, the reality <laughs> was, is, is that, uh, I knew right then and there that I, that I had a problem mm-hmm. and, um, and I've been going to meetings ever since and, and obviously doing other things that we're going to talk about. Hi, welcome back to recovery radio on uh, the phone with us from Connecticut is Jason Bannon. Jason has uh, just spent the first por- portion of the program telling us about his 15, 17 year, uh, story of substance abuse in his life and, how he eventually got himself uh, clean and sober uh, for eight years now, right, uh, right, Jason? Yes. During that period of time, Jason managed to function uh, fairly highly in, in terms of his work. He is a member of the Communications Worker of America, a lineman for, for many, many years. Uh, and then uh, as clean and uh, sobriety took hold in uh, Jason's life, he applied what, what he'd learned from his personal struggle with this disease to um, a position with his union as the as the union assistance professional. So tell us about about that. I there these are referred to as EAPs, correct? Correct. Uh, employee assistance programs. Uh, most uh, large to mid-sized companies have an internal um, employee assistance program. Uh, we we just happen to have here one through uh, our local union as well, and, and several unions across the country uh, do have that. So w- when I first got sober, um, it was you know told to me to get really involved in things, and 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 that's what I did. I was going to meetings every day. I was talking to people. Um, I was really getting involved, and uh, my first sponsor um, approached me and said he was thinking about opening a, a sober cafe. And I said, uh, no problem, anything I can do to help out. And he said, oh, no, you're going to be involved. And uh, I, I was. And we we put together a, a sober cafe. We thought we were going to serve some burgers and coffee and, you know, have some meetings. And it totally ballooned from there uh, where people were coming in the door asking for help. And uh, I was th- thrust into that and, and really, you know, starting to make um, connections with people and, and trying to help folks um, access recovery in any which way that meant. Um, also at that time, I was uh, going to a, a local um, youth prison and bringing a meeting uh, every Monday there for, for, for kids, basically 14 to 18 years old, um, who were in, incarcerated, um, mainly due to substance abuse problems. And I was visiting a local detox uh, once a week and sharing our stories and, and, and letting people know that there was hope out there. So with that being said, one of my coworkers uh, came to me and he said, did you, did you hear there's a, an opening in the union assistance program? And I was unaware that we even had a union assistance program. So I certainly would have used it. I was going to say, telling if, you, if, a guy like, if a guy like you didn't know you had an assistance program, then there's something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know, and I, I, I found out, and uh, I went through the process. I was one of 65 candidates to apply for the job, one of 29 to get interviewed, and and uh, I, I was given the job. and. Uh, the president of the union, when he called me, he said, you know, um, we were weighing hearts and yours weighed the heaviest. And, and that really impacted me um, and, and still does to this day. That was six um, years ago, uh, Jason? 
Yeah, that was uh, February of 2012. So it's just past six years now I've been uh, in the employee assistance program through my union. And you say the, tele- uh, the uh, communication workers uh, of America, the companies that some of your union members work for also have EAP, EAPs? They do. It's basically 1-800 numbers. It's it, mainly tied to their um, their medical benefits, and, and they can call and, and kind of receive, receive the same services that, that we do. But, you know, we're more hands-on here. We're internal, and, and I've worked in the industry, so we kind of have an instant rapport. And I know a lot of the people. Like, you know, I've been here for 23 years, and my father's worked for the company for 45 uh, so it's, uh, it's been, it's been quite a journey and, uh, I've known most of the people, um, who I've helped and their families and EAP is so much broader than, than just substance abuse. We deal with financial issues, elder care, child care, depression, divorce, anxiety, you name it. We have resources for it. And, um, I, I didn't even know what I was getting into, uh, to be quite honest with you. Um, but but I've enjoyed it since day one, and uh, let, let me let me ask you about uh, some some of the things that you would do in a program like this, and as a uh, union assistance professional. For, first of all, in your experience, are, are is the workforce more reluctant to seek this kind of assistance because of fear of losing their jobs than they would if maybe they weren't working? Uh, absolutely. And, and that's one of the one of the reasons why our our program is so effective is because, you know, first and foremost, it's all confidential. Whether it's an external or an internal or whatever, it's all confidential. And, um, you know, but they a lot of people feel more comfortable uh, talking with me because I work for the company. They know it's not going to go any further than me. Um, it's not HR. I don't hire or fire anybody. Um, any information they give me stays with me solely, and it doesn't go anywhere else. Is that something that is a contractual situation between your union and and the companies they they work for? That if a union member comes to you for help, you're not obliged to tell the company. How does that work? Cor- correct. Um, we're so confidential that they don't even know that the person even calls me. Um, even my union doesn't know that they call me. I, I sometimes joke and say I'm like the CIA of the CWA. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, it's, confidentiality is very important. If they can't trust me, they're not going to get the help that they're looking for. And I don't tell them what they need. They tell me, and I tell I give them suggestions as as to what the best course of action is, and they make the decision. And then I just make the phone calls and talk with them and their family. I do it in their home. I'll do it on a job site. Uh, I'll do it wherever they want, wherever they feel most comfortable. Uh, during the course of your work here now, six years as a union EAP, mm-hmm. you become certified as a, an addiction counselor as well? I did. Uh, I got the job, and then I went for the schooling. Um, I'm a certified labor assistance professional. That's basically just EAP in the labor world, and I'm also a national certified addictions counselor. Jason, real quick, uh, and then we're going to take another break here now. I know this is, this is probably a, a silly question, or maybe not so silly. When, when someone comes in who's struggling with drugs or alcohol, and they're, they're still working, Sitting across the desk from you or the table, whatever, are they more interested in saving their job or getting sober? Is it a combination of both? What's your experience with that? 
They're more interested in saving their job, their personal relationships, their wives, their houses, all that stuff. The, the getting sober kind of is a, is a secondhand thought. But we, we talk enough that we make the connection that it really becomes, they know that getting sober will, will help with all that other stuff. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. We'll uh, return to our guest, Jason Bannon, straight ahead. But I, I want to give you a phone number. You know the drill. If you listen to this program more than once, I'm going to give you the phone number to Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers, and I'm going to tell you right up front, I hope you never have to use it. But there are probably phone numbers on your refrigerator with little magnets right now that are police and fire, and they're there, and you never want to use those either. But in an emergency, they can make a difference, and so can this phone number. Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers, they are um, known far and wide as, as leaders in the field. They provide excellent care. If they can help you, they will. But they give you this phone number. They tell me to give it to you for informational purposes, any questions you have about the disease of addiction or your treatment or how to get treatment, uh, this is a good number. 855-859-8808. Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. Uh, again, write it down. And again, I hope you don't have to use it. But uh, when this disease arrives, no one's prepared for it. They have to make extraordinary decisions under extraordinary circumstances. Uh, here's a number you can turn to for straight answers. 855-859-8808. Premier or Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. Uh, from Connecticut, uh, Jason Bannon is with us. He is a uh, union assistance professional with his union, Telecommunication Workers of America. I know, Jason, that you know the guys at Retreat because part of, I guess, what you do is when people come in and uh, if they need treatment, you direct them to, to places, and you've, you've done that with Retreat as well. I have. Uh, they're an excellent, excellent treatment center. Uh, have many people gone there and uh, been very successful. Um, I, I like to say that, you know, actually out of all the people I've sent there, uh, 95% of them have stayed sober and are still sober today. The very first person I ever sent to them is still sober today. That's terrific. That's terrific news. So, again, I want to, I most people, as you say, are probably in the same boat you were in with regard to their job. They, they may be aware that they have a substance abuse problem, a drinking problem, whatever, not aware that their company or their union provides this kind of service so when they come in you know they just don't know who to talk to or or where to turn what happens in a situation where you, or or does this happen where you have to explain to them that they need to go someplace and get some professional treatment yeah well a lot of times um i i am referred to people through their um through their union representatives uh, on the job sites, uh, either um, shop stewards or chief stewards or, or what have you. There's usually a lot, of, you know, it's a, it's a brotherhood, a sisterhood, um, you know, within any, any larger company that there's, there's always that kind of, you know, camaraderie within people, and, and everybody knows everybody's stuff. And, uh, you know, it's pretty apparent, um, you know, at least in my case, it, it was apparent to everyone else before it was apparent to me that I had a problem. Um, and, and it's certainly the case with, with the folks that I, that I work with and, you know, uh, they're given my number, they give me a call. Um, I talk to them, I tell them the same thing every time, you know, I want you to know that the, everything that we talk about is confidential. And, and then we go from there. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of times I have to make a decision in our conversation whether to disclose my own struggles that I had in the past. And 
my my barometer is would it do better to to help them or to help me if it's going to help me i'm not going to tell them if it's going to help them i certainly am ah, interesting i, I hadn't heard it uh, described quite like that makes a lot of sense uh, uh what can you tell us about the and this may be too broad a question for for you but what can you tell us about the rules that govern situations like this if someone and you say it's all confidential i understand that but if someone were to go to their company epa mm-hmm. uh, or somehow or another is identified by someone as needing to do that is their job in jeopardy or? no it, it it shouldn't be um if they're jammed up at work because of other situations that's that's a totally different story um it used to be many many years ago that you could go disclose to your boss and then they would get you help you know, or if you messed up and then, you know, we're drinking on the job, say, and they caught you, then you could say, you know, I have a problem. And then you could go and get some help. But that has changed over the course of the years, where if that happens now, your job is in jeopardy. And you don't have to disclose to your boss. You know, thank God there's there's programs like this, whether it be external or internal with me, that you can, you can call. And, and we make sure that all of our, our stewards know that were available. It's myself and one other gentleman. Like you said, we have over 3,000 employees and their families. So there's about 9,000 people that have access to, to, to myself and the wow. other gentleman in the program. Uh, yeah. So what are the differences? Are that, Well, internal and external EPAs, you mean union EPA as opposed to company EPAs? Is that what you mean? Yeah, well, uh, external EAPs, um, like I said before, are usually an 800 number, and they're just on the other end of the line sitting in front of a computer, punching in information and, and getting resources for you and giving you that information. So an internal is on-site, and it's more face-to-face, and you can really, you know, more have a conversation with them. It doesn't feel like that interview process. Mm-hmm like would be from an 800 number, because they ask you a whole bunch of questions. And I've actually called our own external EAP to see what our members would have to answer as far as questions and things like that. But with us, it's more of a conversation. We get all the information we need, and then we have a conversation. Jason, you're in a great position to talk in general about what you've seen over the course of the uh, six years now that you've been a union EAP uh, tell us a couple of things that uh, have either changed or gotten better or worse. Uh, I'm thinking particularly about the effect it's having on families and what, what kind of work you do as an EPA with families and also the younger uh, worker. Yeah, so there's there's been a lot of changes, and, and obviously, as as we all know, the opiate crisis is is in full swing. It's, it's actually an epidemic. And, um, you know, the things that have changed is that there was a lot of, you know, proverbial drunks. And what's happening now is is there's a younger generation and they're getting involved in opiates. Um, you know, a lot of people start out, we, we had someone who had back surgery and was prescribed uh, an opiate medication, took it for three years, and then the doctor said to him, you know, just uh, we're going to cut you off from this and go stretch. Well, th- that didn't work. And uh, he, he turned to the street um getting pills on the street and, and eventually heroin and uh, because it worked for him and in the pain and eventually lost his job and his family and, and everything else. This, this disease, which I hate, I, I, I always say I would love to do my job so well that I would put myself out of a job, that no one would ever need uh, the assistance, mm-hmm. that there wasn't a crisis anymore. 
Um, but that's just not the case. What else governs things like drug testing? If someone comes to you and they need help and they want to keep their job, do you have to recommend that they be drug tested or how does that work? No, I, I don't do that personally. Um, there's If they have a CDL license, they're subject to random testing. What's a, CD, um, what's a CDL? Up, what's a CDL yeah, license? Uh, uh, it's a commercial driver's license. Ah, if you drive okay. a big rig or you know um, uh, a digger truck or, or something of that nature, that's all through the Department of Transportation. Um, they, are, they are subject to random testings. Now, if they come up dirty on a random testing, um, they have to go see a substance abuse abuse professional and SAP um, and then they're they are you know uh, assigned even more random screenings and and things of that nature does your union run, uh, uh, run meetings for their members uh, AA meetings or uh, we've had we've had some different meetings um, not non-denominational meetings doesn't matter what your uh, DOC drug of choice or alcohol or whatever um, we we've had meetings like that uh, sometimes it's, you know, a matter of people not wanting to come to the union hall for that or, you know, anonymous programs, people want to remain anonymous and that's okay. Um, but, uh, I have attended meetings with, with our members. Um, I've taken them to meetings. I've suggested meetings and for the family too, for Al-Anon or Naranon or, you know, any of that stuff. Families are, families are getting ripped apart by this. Let's talk about that for, for, for the moment here. You, We've talked about you one-on-one with your your fellow uh, union members. Uh, what about their families? Do, do, can they can they benefit from EPAs? Uh, absolutely. So a lot of times when when their loved one is away at treatment, wherever that may be, um, I am totally engaged with the family and answering their questions. You know, uh, I'm on call twenty four seven. So um, if they have a question, you know, at nine o'clock at night. Uh, I'll pick up the phone and, and, and I will do my very best to answer that. But the families need as much support as the person who's going through treatment. And a lot of times they don't see that because, you know, I'm not the one with the problem. Johnny's the one with the problem. And, uh, you know, but I, but I often relate it to ripples in the pond. And their loved one is the rock. And the closer they are to the rock, the bigger the ripples, you know. And, mm-hmm. and, it, and it certainly is a family disease and it affects everyone. Uh- if someone's out there and uh, they're in the workforce and they're trying to hold on to their job and deal with the substance abuse problem that they know they have, and they and they don't have an EPA in, in their in their you know work situation, what do they uh, can they start one? How does it work? Uh, yes, we. Uh, I'm a member of a group called the Labor Assistance Professionals, and and we do a lot of outreach. Uh, within the building trades and 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 anywhere we can we can to um, you know enlist people to to try and start an EAP program and uh, anybody could do it. There's there's actually you don't actually need any certifications to start that program. Programs like this actually started back in the 40s and 50s with people who were getting sober through a 12-step program, mm-hmm. and their boss would come to them and say, Hey, you know Jimmy over there. Uh, has a problem, and I know you had a problem and you don't anymore, can you go talk to Jimmy? And that's how EAP started. It used to be called Almaca, and that's how this whole thing started, and it was originally just for substance abuse, uh, mainly alcoholics, and it blossomed into what it is today for any number of 
things, mental health or, or anything. We're back on Recovery Radio. I hope you've, you've found us by now. We're here on Saturdays, been here for a while, talking about the disease of addiction. Recovery Radio, of course, sponsored by Retreat, Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. Um, and again, I give you their number. Any questions about anything you've heard about you know, employee assistance programs or substance abuse, they'll answer your questions. 855-859-8808, Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. Jason uh, Bannon from uh, Connecticut, where he works as a union assistance professional with the Communication Workers of America. Jason's been um, sober now in his life for uh, over eight years, uh, for the past six He's worked as that union EAP, where he serves 3,000 employees and their families. It's a, it's a big job, uh, and one that's probably getting bigger all the time. Uh, Jason, finally here in the last couple of minutes, a couple of questions about access, for things like access to, uh, to treatment. Is, is it available in, in a place like Connecticut? And if it's not, what's well, that's a, that, that's a big sticking point with me, Steve. Uh, you know, it's all based on 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 a person's um, medical benefit, um, and here in Connecticut, and and for for the employees that we have, um, I have to send ninety nine point nine percent of the people who come to me out of state. Now that's going to change. You keep talking about Retreat Premier Addiction Centers, which is a great great place and they are coming to Connecticut which is which is wonderful but we don't have here in Connecticut anything that takes our insurance for inpatient treatment at least nothing that I would suggest anybody go to what's the political climate in, in a place like Connecticut under those circumstances are those feelings are those uh, attitudes changing about access uh, they they are changing I'm, I'm actually on a, a subcommittee of the alcohol and drug policy council uh, for the state of Connecticut, uh, I'm on the subcommittee for recovery and health management. And there, there is some change in attitudes. And actually, in Connecticut, we do a pretty good job uh, of addressing the problem, uh, oftentimes a, a leader in, in what's going on. But there's always, always, always something that can be done more, you know. And finally, with regard to just treatment, I know you wanted to make a, a point or two about something called MAT, which is medic, medicine-assisted treatment. It's a relatively new topic, but um, yeah. t- tell us about it. Well, you know, me- medication-assisted treatment has been has been around for for a long time, and and uh, you know everybody would know it more as the methadone mm-hmm. uh, clinic, you know, and and that was that was something born you know many moons ago and called a harm reduction model. Uh, basically, if you had if you were getting what you needed, you wouldn't go out and rob, steal, cheat, and and all that other stuff. And and in the, you know the past several years, there's been Vivitrol and Suboxone and and all these other types of medic- medication assisted treatment, and uh, I think they do a really good job in in some cases, but um, you know I I have a hot sticking point with Suboxone because it was originally developed to be a detox drug, you know three to six days and you're off it. You know it was originally developed to to help you kick the habit, and uh, what's happening now is is people are being prescribed it and and on it for years and years Um, because, you know, they can go to their doctor's office, you know, it's cash pay and uh, the doctor gets his money and and away they go. And to me, that's just, 
you know, it, it borders on criminal yeah. in, in, in a lot of cases, and it, and it really bothers me. I had one gentleman who called me. He was on Suboxone for three years, wanted to get off. It was hard for him to get off. The last milligram was the worst, and, and then he experienced uh, kind of withdrawal symptoms for almost up to a year mm. after taking it. Well, you know, it's a really it's a, a peculiar time because uh, this disease, whether it was alcohol many many years ago, or now all kinds of uh, other substances that are being abused, s- sort of was stra- shrouded in uh, in obviously shame and guilt and and silence and a lot of myths and misconceptions surrounded addiction. First of all, that it was even a disease. So today we have a much broader. Um, discussion about this disease, but we're still seeing a lot of confusion and a lot of, I wouldn't say misrepresentations, but but a lot of claims that, that need to be examined. I would guess that part of what an EAP does is to make sure people understand something like Suboxone or Vivitrol is not a magic bullet or that you can't get a prescription for marijuana and, and think that's going to get you off heroin. A lot of that's going on right now, isn't it? It is. It is. And, it, you know, in some cases, it's it's kind of misrepresented, you know. And, uh, you know, personally, I'm not a big fan of, of, of Suboxone. Um, but in my professional career, if that's what somebody wants, I, I will, you know, make that happen for them. Um, but, it, but if they want my opinion and I ask them, do you want my opinion, I will certainly give it to them. Listen, there's there's many pathways to recovery and whatever works for somebody I'm I'm all for it. I don't I don't take my personal journey and interject it into somebody else's. Um, their journey is their journey, and uh, I try to keep my personal opinions out of it. But uh, you know, like I said, if they ask for it, I'm going to give it to them. Finally, Jason, as I said, eight years sober. Um, what's what's the relationship between what you're doing now and your sobriety? If there is a relationship between that, yeah. So. Uh, it's very important for me to realize that my work is my work, and it's my job, and that's not my personal recovery. Now, when I when I first started, they kind of interchanged uh, between the two, um, but you know, so I started doing the job. I was helping a lot of people, and in the back of my mind, it was like, ah, well, why do I got to go to a meeting, or why do I got to reach out to this person? I do this every day, and it became clear. About six months into it, that I needed to take personal accountability for my own sobriety, for my own recovery, and so, you know, to this day and 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 moving forward, I still do things that are personal to my recovery. And I have a lot of friends who are in recovery, and we do a lot of things together, and it's and it's a, a wonderful thing. Um, but when I enter a twelve step fellowship. I leave my EAP hat at the door, and I go in, and, and it's really, what am I doing for my own self that day? Jason Bannon, Communication Workers of America. He's a union assistance professional with them. We th- uh, Thanks so much, Jason, for your time and your work. Thank you. And the rest of you, enjoy the rest of the weekend. Please keep us in mind, Recovery Radio. Bye-bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.